Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, one and all, to a performer-oriented episode of Be Real, guys. It's your film reviewing and reappraising podcast. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. How are you, friend? Uh, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Uh, kind of a hectic couple of days. I've got my, my band of interns in town, so... Nice. We were just painting the town red. It's kind of fun to be like a, a tourist in your own city for a change. Sure, sure. Do Spike Lee uh, movies about New York ever make you feel that way? Well, yeah. Like I have after having watched all these films, I was like, I have to tell them about the real Brooklyn. Right. I need to <laughs> but there was take these guys to the courts on Coney Island. Did you show them that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We took the queue all the way down to Coney Island. No, it's way too cold for that. Um, which leads us, I think, to naming the category for this episode which the seems uh, like a natural segue to me the filmmaker known as spike lee uh turns 60 this month the director of such films as do the right thing malcolm x inside man 25th hour uh school day she hate me all kinds of stuff uh she gotta have it she gotta have it from the from the mid 80s to present um when the levees broke uh, requiem for katrina in four parts that's right a couple uh TV films, Kobe doing work. How Kobe do you, doing how work. How deep do we want to go here? <laughs> uh, we can go as deep as IMDb will allow us. Um, we tried to iron out a category, and uh, I think the one we decided on is his collaborations with uh, none other than Denzel Washington. That parenthetically aren't Malcolm X. Right. So, like, the lesser collaborations. Right. Because Malcolm X is kind of like the monolith. Oh, I mean, I think it's the most probably ubiquitous Spike Lee movie. Now, I think Do the Right Thing is probably his most acclaimed film. But yeah, Malcolm X might like loom the largest. Yeah. Because of the Washington performance and, and Malcolm X himself. So Mo Better Blues of 1990. He Got Game of 1998. Oh, yeah. And Inside Man of 2006. Are these all eight, eight years apart? Nice. Eight years apart. Interesting. That is, that's nice. That's nice. Uh, a nice detail that we had no, like we did not have intentionally, no. of course. No. Um, but it's nice to discover it uh, now. Yes. Um, so we have a couple guests on this episode who we'll introduce in a bit. Um, but I think in, let's say, in two minutes or less, Noah, why Spike Lee? What's your opinion of Spike Lee and his work? Why Spike Lee? Um, that's interesting. Spike Lee is such an, a fascinating director because I find a lot of his movies like unwatchable. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but I think he's also like, he's probably made at least one of my top 10 like favorite movies, which is the 25th hour. Yeah. He's an interesting director. I think that's why he like is, is all over the spectrum because like sort of like an Oliver Stone in the way that he just doesn't compromise. That's yes. His films have a tremendous mark of personality on them. Right. And it's this is Spike Lee commenting on whether it's a bank heist movie or just like race relations on a particularly hot day in the late 80s in Bed-Stuy. Yeah. Like it's his view of it. Yeah. 
He's one of my favorites, and but even though I think like it's just because of the big swings. Like sometimes when he's just blatantly missing the ball, if you think about it long enough, you can be like, oh wait, well maybe that wasn't even the pitch he was swinging at. Like there's a lot to try to comprehend in his films, even if you think what he's doing isn't working. And by the way, when it does work, it's some of like the flashiest, most incredible filmmaking of the last quarter century. No matter what he does, he has this very specific goal in mind. And the politics of all these movies, I think, are very similar. Yeah. Denzel is his leading man. I mean, I think it's... I'm going to ask our guest about this in just a bit, but I mean, he's Scorsese's De Niro. Uh, Oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what's interesting to see, like, him buy into such an indulgent... Like, three very indulgent pictures, I would say, Mm -hmm. in these three movies. And we won't even talk about Malcolm X, but, like, seeing him at sort of... Not to say the mercy of Spike Lee, but, like, in Spike Lee's world, like, the fences are way further away. Uh Uh-huh. And to see, like what that allows Denzel to like jump out onto like the end of the high dive and do like whether he, it's a huge splash or like a perfect dive, but it's up to Denzel. So before we jump into Mo Better Blues, why don't we get uh, some insight on Spike Lee from the man who wrote Spike Lee's America. Let's get to our first guest. Well, our guest today is the host of the Films in Focus podcast, which he executes as the film critic for Robin Hood Radio. He is the editor-in-chief of the Quarterly Review of Film and Video, a contributing writer at Cineast, a professor at the Maryland Institute College of Art. He's the author of several books on film, television, literature, most notably for our purposes. He's the author of the 2013 title, Spike Lee's America. David Starrett, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. I'm very pleased to have you today. Um, So let's sort of start with your relationship to Spike Lee and the genesis of your book. You've you've written books about Jean-Luc Godard, Hitchcock, um, The Honeymooners, uh, The Beat Poets. Um, You've been a working critic for decades and interviewed Spike Lee, as you talk about in the book. So what drew you to um, undertaking an actual book about him a few years ago? I guess the genesis of it was when Polity Press uh, came to me and asked me if I'd like to do a book for their series, America Through the Lens, mm-hmm. uh, which deals with uh, a particular filmmaker's, you know, the, the vision of America that it is constructed through that filmmaker's uh, movies. Mm-hmm. And um, I can't remember exactly why or when, but uh, I, I, I brought Spike into, the, into the, the realm of possibility because it struck me that he is someone who has a very distinctive vision of America. Uh, I mean, all of his movies deal with America. They mainly deal with America through the city and specifically through New York City and specifically through uh, through Brooklyn. Uh, but what emerges from that is a, a very contemporary vision of today's America. And the fact that it comes from the point of view of an African-American filmmaker, uh, I thought it might be interesting to approach that since I am a white critic. Very much on that page, one of the 
big themes that you lead in with in the book is that yes, Spike Lee is like a quintessential African American filmmaker, but at the at this right alongside that, he's also uh, an American director, um, and both can be true and both can be intertwined. What, along with sort of, I guess, it sounds like the hook for that series kind of helped lead you there, but why did you feel that that was a distinction that was important to make, that he can be both an African-American artist and uh, just an, a, a more general American artist? Yeah, well, uh, I would say the first answer is the fact that he is an artist. Right. You know, he has made some pretty bad films, but I think he is an extraordinarily gifted uh, and at times truly brilliant filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's an artist and he has things to say that I think is the mark of an artist is an artist have something to communicate, have something of value to say about the human condition or some important aspect of the human condition. And I think Spike definitely does. And I'll just add one more thing. Uh, sometimes uh, when I'm teaching a, a film by a black filmmaker to the, the, the college where I teach uh, these days, uh, the Maryland Institute College of Art, um, l- like other places where I've taught, including Columbia University in New York and Long Island University in New York. Uh, It's a predominantly white place. I Mm -hmm. teach predominantly white students. And every once in a while, somebody will raise uh, the uh, kind of objection, but I don't feel comfortable talking about this because I'm a privileged white person and this movie was made by a black person. And I say that black person made that movie for us all to come and see. I would say I see him as an American artist who is also an African-American artist. He might put it the other way around. Sure. And on that note, I, I think I can't quite remember in the book where it was, but haven't you said that when you've interviewed Lee himself, he's also talked about like how he doesn't think that white audiences are in some ways like less qualified to take in his films? Yeah, I mean, I can't remember having specifically discuss, discussed that with him. You know, we've had a few conversations, interviews over the years, uh, but I, I, I really do think that he looks at it that way. I, I remember one of the very first conversations we ever had, and I have a feeling it was when I was uh, interviewing him for a uh, for a TV segment once, um, and I was telling him about a friend of mine who had said about the the, the climactic moment in Do the Right Thing when Mookie throws the garbage can through mm-hmm. the window and yells. Uh, that my friend had said um, that uh, this was Mookie defusing the situation in a way by creating a distraction and trying to trying to make things better. Hmm. Uh, and and I, I didn't particularly agree with my friend on this, but I thought it was an interesting point of view, and I wanted to know what Spike thought of it. And Spike gave me this extremely impish kind of a look, and he said, this is a white friend. And I said, yeah, and he said, well, your white friend was right. Uh, you know, he's perfectly happy to go that route when he feels like it. But uh-huh. at the same time, I truly think that he wants his movies to be seen by as many people and as many different kinds of people as possible. And I think that one of his most fascinating, uh, maybe his single most fascinating trait as a filmmaker and as an artist is his willingness. And in fact, eagerness to not have answers to things Mm -hmm. to open up many more questions than he ever wants to claim that he has answers for and that i think right there marks him as somebody who is absolutely not putting forth any sort of a of a skewed vision i think he's putting forth a it is very much a personal vision but uh i think that he wants to open up all these questions and let everybody from every possible point of view think about them so Leading into your book, at the very end of your intro, you you kind of sum up uh, Spike's filmography in in a way that I really like. You say that it's usually exciting, sometimes exasperating, invariably stimulating and energizing American movies. Um, and 
I just, I, I wanted to kind of draw attention and ask you, um, Spike Lee does seem like this person, even people who love him, uh, are often very like forthright in admitting that the things that he does, like sometimes don't work. And that's like the sometimes exasperating, uh, part uh whether it's like a a conceit that's narrative or written or visual maybe it just doesn't land but it's almost kind of like part of the fun and in, in being a fan of him and I, I wonder why you uh do you do you feel like kind of like noting his his like failures and his swings and misses is like important to do with Spike Lee my main response I think is is kind of a cliche but I'm gonna say it anyway mm-hmm. uh, if you don't if you don't risk missing you're not necessarily going to hit the really long ball from time to time i cannot believe i used a sports metaphor but <laughs> what i'm trying to say is you got to take risks if you're going to be um or it's, it's part of being an artist as opposed to a mere entertainer right. you know entertainment and art there's no firm line between them but if you're going to be not just somebody who is out to please everybody all the time if you really want to have something to say if you want to plumb things to their depths or at least well below the surface if you want to say things that maybe you're not 100 percent sure are absolutely correct but you feel they need saying anyway you know you have to do all those things if you're going to be an artist and i think spike does do all those things now i mean i can't begin to imagine how a movie like like she hate me or girl six emerges from the cameras of spike lee you know? <laughs> i think these are are are, are pretty pretty well nondescript or worse uh, movies than that uh the movie that seems to have squelched his big studio career at, le- at least for a long time and maybe forever uh miracle at saint anna yeah I find it quite remarkable that anyone could make a movie as bad as that. You mm. know, I, mean, I just do. That's my personal opinion of it. But, you know, hey, so there you go. On the other hand, uh, I think that Do the Right Thing is one of the truly great modern films from anybody anywhere of the past several decades at least. It is just a masterpiece, and I see it over and over again, and I'm always impressed by it. Uh, so, and, and one of his, uh, you know, quote-unquote white films, 25th Hour, I think is an extraordinary piece of work. It has some stuff in it that doesn't work, but overall it is astoundingly insightful uh, and extraordinarily powerful as a work of cinema. So, you know, if, 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 if he didn't uh, make those movies that somehow had just fallen apart uh i don't think he would have uh you know had the had the had the kind of intestinal fortitude to, mm-hmm. to <laughs> take the risks that he takes in those two incredibly great movies and, and and some of the others as well yeah yeah i wanted to talk specifically about the way that spike lee begins and ends movies because along with uh you know his sort of um cast of characters that often includes like Bill Nunn and Giancarlo Esposito that his sort of his theater troupe and his dolly shots which are calling cards it seems like he often begins movies with these incredible like non-narrative sequences that kind of illustrate a theme or shows you where or how the movie's going to be set or just the mood that you're about to deal with whether it's uh like the bell of the trumpet and Mo Better Blues or Rosie Perez dancing and do the right thing um and yet when it comes to endings they often feel like kind of like epilogues that just aren't sure where to stop i wondered what your take was on beginning and ending movies for spike 
Well, I mean, on the beginnings of the films, uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to include everything I'm going to say right now. does not include sort of his last few features because sure. I, I don't think that they've really quite connected. We can talk about those separately if you want. Right but I, I'm, I'm not going to particularly talk about those because I, I think that I'm talking about what we might call his, his golden age. You know? Right. Uh, but uh, certainly – for much of his career, Spike has been one of the great uh, uh, opening titles uh, filmmakers of all time. I mean, he will just start off the films with just such a bang uh, that uh, he, he sure has your attention, whatever else is going to follow. So uh -huh. I, I think extremely great talent for that. And then also what happens right after the opening titles, as we ease our way into the movie itself. Uh, he has a very, very, I think a very articulate and, and effective way of doing that by and large. The ends of his films is more interesting to me because I think that he is, and I, I sense some skepticism on your part, right. but I think Spike has at least from time to time come up with some of the truly uh, resounding en endings, okay. uh, uh, including in some of his really major films, and I'll give a couple of examples, and they're what I consider probably his two greatest films. One is Do the Right Thing. Mm -hmm. I think the ending is, uh, Do the Right Thing is absolutely remarkable uh, in the way that it does not resolve things. It does not wrap things up. It leaves open questions. It does not answer the many, many, many questions that have been raised. We've had a whole lot of different pieces of evidence adduced over the course of the film. We've had a lot of different ways introduced that we might think about these different issues and different kinds of things that can happen within these kinds of situations, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes to the end, he chooses not to resolve them. And I think that this is just extraordinarily brilliant on his part. When I first heard that title, Do the Right Thing, I thought, what a silly title for a movie. It doesn't say anything. What does that mean? Well, of course, that turns out to be exactly what the movie's about. What in the world is the right thing? Mm -hmm. How Know what the right thing is. How do you do the right thing? This is what the movie's about. And again, he does not provide us with answers particularly. Right. Ending of, uh, of 25th Hour, uh, once again, uh, here we have a scene which I know that some people, including at least one of Spike's former film editors, uh, regarded it as a great big mess, told me that once. Uh, mm -hmm. I won't quote him by name because I don't think he expected to be quoted, but hey, uh, so not everybody likes that ending. But uh, the scene when Brian Cox is driving Edward Norton north to the prison and Brian Cox launches into what we expect is going to be a little bit of a, you know, behind the steering wheel soliloquy while you're just tooling down the highway. And as he begins to speak and the images begin to illustrate what he is speaking of, the uh, movie morphs into a, 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 a vision of America. And it's a utopian vision. It's an idealistic vision, both in the personal terms of this narrative and in terms of what America might be, but emphatically is not. And as it proceeds, I just find it so enormously moving. It's just, it's, it's, it's astonishing to me. And here we have Spike Lee, the African-American filmmaker who knows all that is wrong with America. That's for sure. And he's let us know that in a whole lot of his movies, sketching out this beautiful vision of what we could be if we dared. Now, it's not there because the last thing we see is the car continuing down the highway and it's going to prison and Edward Norton might be awaiting a horrible fate there. Uh, so yeah, it's not a make-believe thing, but it is a visionary thing. And I think it's, so th those two endings alone, I would say, uh, mm -hmm. would indicate Spike as one of the great endings makers in modern film. 
but there's other things too. I mean, the ending of Mo Better Blues is sort of, when I first saw it, I found it kind of rushed and, you know, sort of tacked on. But then I realized later on, it's like that movie, that, the, the piece of music that suddenly builds toward a, a great fl- flourish and doesn't waste any time getting there. And then come, we're at the end. And I thought, hey, you know, this really does work very nicely once mm. you get it its rhythms. So you know, by and large, I will defend Spike as a maker of endings. I'm sure there's big exceptions to that, but the on the basis of Do the Right Thing in 25th Hour alone, I would say that he is one of the great endings makers that I know of. Well, David, thank you so much for your time. It's much appreciated and your perspective and uh, for writing this book, talking about Spike Lee. Thank you so much for the great questions. I want a man who knows what he wants. I know what I want, my music, everything else is secondary. What you and I do is not make love. <laughs> what would you call it, Dad? It's definitely not making love. Have you ever heard of the Mo Better? Mo what? Mo Better makes it Mo Better. Mo Better Blues? Absolutely. So this is the 1990 film, we're still pretty early with, uh, with Spike here, about... Um, the it was only like his second major film. Is that true? It's his follow-up to Do the Right Thing, as Mo Better Blues. Okay. About, like, virtuosic trumpet player, Bleaky Gilliam. So the movie opens, and it's basically sort of this uh, normal picture of, like, a prodigy's troubled, troubled childhood. He wants to go outside and play with his friends. His friends are at the window. Come play with us. I don't want to play my scales, Mom. You play your scales. He relents and plays of scales and then you come back and you see him uh leading this jazz quartet um with bill nunn on the bass and Giancarlo esposito on the piano wesley snipes on the sax uh, i guess it's a quintet with him and then i didn't know the drummer did you know the drummer the drummer i did not recognize jeff watts playing rhythm jones um, <laughs> of course he's playing rhythm jones <laughs> um and they are I guess you would say that they are doing a business at a middle of the road kind of club in New York. Uh, yeah, run. well, they're in they're in like deep Brooklyn. Like the joke is that they're deep on Flatbush Avenue. The two owners, played by John Turturro, and then I didn't know the other guy. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but their last name is like Flatbush. Looks like his brother Nick Turturro. Oh, interesting. And they play brothers, and there's these like very like sort of Jewish stereotype showrunners who like have this theater in Flatbush Avenue, like maybe like King's theater or something like that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they're like the house bands and people like come out to see them. And there's sort of that tension there of like, should they get paid more? And then, then you sort of have the Spike Lee character in the mix too of the manager who frankly like causes most of the plot to happen because of his poor management skills and also his like crippling gambling addiction. Yep, yep. And that creates most of the conflict in the band, uh, mostly with uh, Shadow, the saxophonist, Wesley Snipes, uh, who wants them to negotiate a better contract. Why are we not seeing this money? Could it be because of Giant's gambling addiction? (laughs) Um, But Bleak is so fixated on the music, and Giant's an old friend of his. He just, like, doesn't care to involve himself in the real-world business side. He just wants to either be by himself, like, writing incredible, like, new wave jazz compositions or else um the cheating on one of his two girlfriends uh Joali or uh Cinda Williams um play play the two girlfriends um 
And you kind of see, occasionally see him in the throes of passion, but mostly you see him in the musical throes of passion. Like that's where he's most at home. Yeah, this movie like picks up on the scenes of passion and like yeah. it sort of has the duality of like whether or not this guy is like a lover or an artist. And that sort of is his main conflict is that he feels like he's with three women, like he's with these two physical human women and then he's with jazz. Right, right. And he has these love affairs that he's gotten very good because of what his parents taught him to like compartmentalize. But then sort of the the, the movie unfolds in a way that sort of indicates that maybe life cannot be lived this way. Um, so that's the setup. But I would say this one in particular is not a very plot driven movie. It's a lot of like the giant's addiction is the thing that moved the plots along. But a lot of it's just hangout, right? Some pretty good hangout. It's pretty good hangout. And there's like enough conflict that ultimately is like entertaining, albeit like not related to the main conflict of the movie. Like the, <laughs> this, the part where uh, Giancarlo Esposito's girlfriend is white and French. And there's like this racial tension that exists there. It's yeah. sort of fascinating. Um, yeah. Like the girlfriend stuff is like, I know he has this nice Denzel has this nice relationship with his father. Oh, yeah, that's right. Who he, like, plays catch with sometimes. And, like, the father's, like, don't, like, get obsessed with women because, like, they'll ruin you. Yeah. And he's, like, I got it, Dad. And then proceeds to, like, not have it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which is, an, there. it's a lot of interesting context. But, my right. like, it's a lot of exposition. And then it leads up to, like, a sort of violent moment that transitions into a montage that wraps the film up weirdly. Before we get to the end... So yeah. this this Denzel, um, he's so young, and he's oh my god, so handsome! I think he's oh, like yeah. thirty in this movie, um, and I don't know if I've ever seen him like kind of so like cute before and like willing to clown like that. The dolly shots in this movie are like three sixty in the apartment while he's playing music, and then there's that first scene where he's like he doesn't have the trumpet and he's just like making mouth noises and it's like simultaneously like adorable. And you're like, Oh, that's how prodigious this guy is that like he can basically play the trumpet in his head without the trumpet. Yeah. To your point, I just think like, it's almost like Denzel playing a role that almost needs the charm of a young Will Smith. Right. Well, sort of. I mean, like, that's what it asks of him to, like, buy into this whole thing, right? Like, this kind of change of heart that here's, like, this cute... Oh, I see. If you're taking the ending at face value, yeah. Like, he's a hitch. It's a sort of a hitch-like character. (laughs) A guy who's really good at his business and, like, compartmentalizes his real life with his work life. Yeah. And, you know, it'll take a good woman to, like, bring him around to like whatever realization he's going to come to about the purpose of his life. Right. It's interesting if you sort of like consider the ending and then try to rewrite the middle, but that's not what Denzel is playing for most of the movie. He's playing this sort of like epical, like obsessed figure who's going to be punished for his obsession. So the ending seems to come out of nowhere. Right. Cause this movie is sort of strange that it has like, I felt like a theatrical sort of book ending because you yeah. have the the thing where the kids come up to the window and the mom like leans her head out and says like, stop screaming. But it's the, so, and it's the same kids at the beginning scene and the ending scene. And it's like, it's shot very like boldly, like a, it's almost like a stage play. 
Yeah. And the idea of like, this is the ensemble like outside is sort of an interesting right. thing he's doing. But then the movie in the middle is so self-serious. It loses some of that fun. Mm-hmm. So I have this thing with most Spike Lee movies and we're going to, I think we're going to talk a lot about like what he does or doesn't do with endings where it's like, Hey man, I think that's where you should end it. And for me, it's the scene like a little bit like a la the conversation where he's on the floor, like flossing his fingers with like cassette tape that he's unwound from his jazz things. And I think if you end it there, it is a much more like, yes. And here was the tragedy of like jazz Achilles, but instead he goes for that thing, which is that I think when he tries to end movies, he wants both like <sighs> profound wrap up and profound ambiguity at the same time. And it's so weird. Yeah. Well, I think his ambition for like what his movies are saying limits how good they inevitably are. Cause like what he wants you to glean from this movie is not simply like, look at how this one man lost everything because he couldn't choose between these two women and this one obsession. Right. And he wants to pull back further and make a commentary on, like, the, like, fathers of that generation in a particular community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because he wanted to show that whole generation gap of, like, one father and the legacy they lead for their son and the legacy he leads for his son. And, like, that is, like, more about the, what the movie's about. And that feels like a bigger commentary on this, like, particular group of people living in Bed-Stuy at this time. Yeah. Which is maybe not the most universal. Like, you could have, you could have, like, gotten us, I think, with just this, like, parable set in this, maybe this place we don't need to understand all the inner workings of. So, can we give a quick nod to, like, the musical set pieces? Because Denzel, oh. when he plays the song Pop Top Urban 40 Funk Love song, is unbelievable. You've never seen him do any. I, I'm a huge Denzel fan, and I've never seen him do that. I've never seen him do anything like that it's almost like you know what i thought of was the tom cruise uh like slam poetry he does in (laughs) cocktail it's like almost on that same level of like what like i know you but like what are you doing (laughs) is this what you do when i'm not around is this what you do in your lesser known works like What's happening here? Oh my god! Uh, but the music is really good. It's really good. Um, even that scene oh, yeah. at the end when you know Giants being pulled out to pay the piper um, in the scene that ultimately gets bleak as well. Um, you know when he kind of like sees him out of the corner of the eye and then like continues to have like his transcendental moment. Like I'm not gonna go help you until I've like reached the angels with this trumpet solo. Right. Like it really uses music damn effectively he uses music as well i would say as like a whiplash so before we rate this thing why don't we explain to the audience how our rating system works all movies and most of life can be described with our rating system the four categories are good good bad bad good bad and bad good the first good or bad refers to intellectual quality the second is pure pleasure Good good is easy, things that make you feel smart and happy, and that for both reasons you'd want to do again, like watching The Departed or Jaws or calling your pal to do a podcast with him. Good good movies make Noah say, Love that. Bad bad is easy too, things that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just wasted your time. 
Things like Watching White Chicks or Wild Wild West. A conceptual double album of Christian pop punk. Bad bad movies make Chance say things like, I hated that. Good Bad Then is something you recognize as worthwhile, but not something you enjoy. Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, most classical music, eating your goddamn vegetables. Good Bad is about being an adult, and these kinds of movies make Noah say, I mean, I'm glad I saw it once, but never again. Conversely, Bad Good is for your thoughtless inner child. It's Cheetos, it's late career Billy Joel, it's movies like Christmas Vacation, Honey, Kids, and Deep Blue Sea. Bad good movies make chance say, But it failed in such an entertaining way. Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear an opinion stated as fact. I think it's a pretty interesting performance out of Denzel, and a lot, like, it's a great cast. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's a pretty, like, ambitious sort of character study. And there's, like, a lot to, like, appreciate about this movie. And, like, I can forgive its technical flaws because of its charm. But that charm for me, like, it's still, like, what, a two-hour and 15-minute movie? All Spike Lee movies are, (laughs) except for Malcolm. But they're all just, like, you know, 15 minutes too long. Right. So I'm going to have to say that this one is probably good-bad. 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 Okay. Like, I think there's enough to make it, like, a film worth sort of, like, canonizing. Mm-hmm. in his oeuvre but yeah. i don't think if it's like hey guys you want to like get together and like watch a movie like what what should we watch like what about mo better blues like i wouldn't be that guy okay i strangely might say the exact opposite though okay i think that the the hangout scenes in the dressing room and some of those musical set pieces are worth coming back for or at least like maybe like skipping around your DVD or like seeking out uh, right. like in pieces on YouTube. Um, so I think it does. Ha- it is punctuated with those watchable, very sure. watchable moments. I just don't think like we talked about as a as a piece of narrative. It just seems confused to me. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Um, say bad, good. And we should say, too, that this one is on HBO right now. That's right. Uh, several Spike movies are on HBO. Yeah, this one is on HBO. Uh, Inside Man. Inside Man is nowhere. He Got Game is on Netflix. Yeah, He Got Game, Netflix. Um, Inside Man's on for three ninety nine on Amazon. Right. Should we go to He Got Game? I would love to do that, because this okay. movie, I think, requires the most examination. And it's weird. Can I make like a really hot take early on? Sure. Don't you feel like this movie is the like adult equivalent to Space Jam in like <laughs> in a similar like it requires a similar uh-huh. sort of like indulgence into American pop culture and basketball? Sure. Okay. I'm, frankly, I'm surprised that uh, one of the sleazy agents wasn't like Jesus. We'll give you a car and a mountain of cocaine if you'll do something with the Looney Tunes in like one of those crazy montages. Right. That's a good take. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's very of its time. Like, this Mm -hmm. is the end of that generation of young guys coming right to the NBA. I'm going to fill you in on all you need to know about NBA of the time. Like, Glenn Robinson coming in and getting, like, $25 million a year before the NBA was like, we should have rookie contracts and rules about agents. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So he is really commenting on, yeah, the beginning of, like, the NBA is one of the American cultural phenomenons and... 
like how lawless it was, especially <laughs> temptation wise for inner city kids. Right. But if I can say like just artistically speaking and to use a baseball reference, because I really just don't know anything uh, about basketball. I'll translate it. Go ahead. You can tell, and you texted me about this, but this like Jose Canseco like pullback swing <laughs> with opening the movie with a montage of just like Americans playing basketball Americans while everywhere. Aaron Copeland plays in the background. My God. This like thinks that it is the natural for basketball, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think Spike Lee feels like a deep, deep like romantic purity for this game yeah uh yeah because that montage is like so it is people playing on the courts in in brooklyn and in la and then you have like you're sort of like larry bird proxy like behind the farmhouse in indiana right <laughs> like james Na- james naismith's grandson or something like throwing a ball in a milk cart um, yep milk crate um so after this like ridiculous opening montage um the movie is about the Shuttlesworth family and you have Jake Shuttlesworth played by Denzel Washington who's in prison and his son Jesus Shuttlesworth. <laughs> Haven't you heard? Jesus saves. And who is the number one prospect um, in like the basketball world coming out of high school um, in this high school for in Coney Island. And the warden calls Denzel in and says, Hey, if you can convince your son to uh, play for big state, then we'll like shorten your sentence. And Denzel's like, Oh, and you're not really sure what he's done until like halfway through the film, but we can spoil it. Like what happened was he like accidentally kills his wife in front of the son, Yeah, which, so he gets out of jail and like, connects with the son and tries to convince him to go to Big State. We out the projects, baby. Where we gonna live at, son? Central Park West somewhere? What you gonna buy your mama, son? How much? A big house. It's the will of the man. It ain't the skill of the man. Don't be afraid of nobody. Take it. Take Go it. strong, baby. Like nobody's better yes. than you. You have a son named Jesus Shuttlesworth? Let's start with, I think, a place that you want to start. So Jesus is played by the NBA's all-time leader in three-point field goals made, Ray Allen, um, <laughs> who is very young at this point. I think he is like two years into his NBA career. Sure. Um, and he, Ray Allen is interesting. He's been an interesting personality just as a basketball fan. And then to see that put on screen, because Ray Allen is very stoic. Right. Um. And so is Jesus Shuttlesworth. Yes, yes. Um, Jesus Shuttlesworth. Well, that's the thing. It requires him to have two emotions, I would argue, is uh, completely stoic and silent or uh, sort of skeptical. So I think the movie is also edited very cleverly not to give Ray Allen like too much to do in an uncontrolled setting. Like, oh, sure. Spike Lee does some very cool things very cool if like a little unnecessary things with montage in this movie to kind of show you like here's what like jesus and his five-man unit on the high school team like metaphorically do as they all dribble away from you um and it is kind of cool because ray allen has that very recognizable thing that athletes who've spent their entire life trying to get better at one thing have which is that they're not very adept at like modulating emotion but when I think that doesn't work is you have numerous scenes in this movie 
where Ray Allen and his sister, or Ray Allen and Rosario Dawson, or Ray Allen and his dad, are just yelling at each other for five right. minutes while Aaron Copeland continues to play. The oh my god. Yeah. This... The Aaron Copeland in the opening and the Aaron Copeland in the one on one game, I think is you could pass off as like a bold, maybe brilliant directorial choice. But to have it over top of conversations constantly is horrible. No, it's no good. Um, that's the thing where I think Spike Lee maybe like figured out how to make a more commercially viable film with like Inside Man of just like making one bold music choice for like a montage and then like letting that go. Yeah. So if it doesn't work, it's just like fine. <laughs> like we it, it, we didn't hire this Bollywood uh, composer to to score the whole thing of Inside Man. Let's just sample one song. Yeah, it'll be memorable. It'll be memorable and weird, but you won't be like, you know what fucking ruined that movie? The montage with the Bollywood soundtrack. Where this one is just like, yeah, the the choice to get Aaron Copeland. It just feels like this weird grab at like like American authenticity or something. Right. Like that it has to be like the natural of like he wanted it to have that like like of the natural. <laughs> Uh-huh. And so Aaron Copeland just sort of wrote around fanfare for the common man, like yeah. variations on a theme. And then you sort of get those like bold, like minor key horns, like telling you how important like every, every like, you know, shake and bake move is. Right. But it's not, that was good. That was basketball. You did it. <laughs> but it's not only reserved for the shake and bake moves. It's like two person conversations. Right. So what I think happens if I can, uh, put my own spin on what I think you just said quite accurately is that like Spike Lee, as everybody who knows him knows just adores basketball. And he wants to show that there is this kind of um, universal through history, operatic like feeling to this contemporary American, like city dwelling story. But what he, in his effort to show that what I think he creates is like a movie that is like one big overtone. Like what Mo Better Blues has is like those scenes where he's just like, and now we're in this room and we're just going to develop something about a character. Yeah. Like those are the best scenes of Mo Better Blues. But with this one, because he has Ray Allen who only does like not speaking or speaking skeptically, Mm -hmm. like he doesn't have a lot of room to play. Right. There, there is like an overarching plot of like which team is, which college or professional team is he going to pick? And then, like, is Denzel going to be able to convince him? But there's so many, like, there's no fucking reason that Mila Jovovich is in this movie. No, no. There's, like, zero. The plot of this movie should be very simple, right? Right. A father gets out of jail. He has, like, seven days to reconcile with the son to make one choice. This movie could be 85 minutes. Right. It's that the movie doesn't follow. The plot is not dictating anything about where the movie goes. Right. When they play their climactic one-on-one game... I've seen that scene on YouTube a whole bunch of times, and I was just like, this is probably a pretty cool movie. It comes out of nowhere in the movie. Right. Like, it's unclear whose movie it is. That's very true. I think. Because, like, it wants you to feel a lot for Jesus, but then, like, the protagonist of the film is Jake. Yeah. If you have a scene like you have with, what's his name, Big Deal? Big Deal. Who's the guy in the car where they have the montage about all the things that are going to oh, tempt yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy who, the Russian roulette guy from Malcolm X. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's like, that's a brilliant montage. 
where he's like, he lays out for him, like, these are the things that could potentially get in your way of your dreams. And he's just like very real with him. But you can't give that sort of montage to the antagonist or a supporting character. Right. Because then you like get in that you're in their mind and then you can't pull back enough to then get into some. It's too omniscient. That's a good way of putting it. Can we talk about the one on one scene? Sure. Because like that's the best part of this movie is Denzel Washington. Because that game was like supposedly the first half of it was like unscripted. Like Denzel Washington without like a cut in the film stealing the ball from Ray Allen and making a turnaround three-pointer over a Hall of Famer to be is incredible. Yeah. Like that game's pretty good. I mean, Jake's um, got some moves like I mean, yes. that's the thing. What he's been doing in prison has been working on his game. It's true. Like it's he's true. never given up. He's got game too. Yeah, even if I don't believe that a father with such an ugly head heave could produce, like, the perfect shooting mechanics of one Raymond Allen. (laughs) Yeah, that's the one thing about Denzel is that his shot is, like, kind of... It's not pretty. It's not. It's it's, a real dad shot. (laughs) And Ray Allen is the Terminator of the outside game. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, no. So that part was fun. But, like, let's wrap up here. From... Nobody wants to watch Denzel and an NBA player play one-on-one more than me. But, <laughs> but that can't even carry this for me. Like, I think it's a pretty... There are some interesting moments. There are a, There's a lot of ambition. There's... Again, we kind of talked right over it. Like, Denzel's acting is good, but it's a Yeah, I mean, bad. he's doing his usual sort of, like, humbled guy who's just, like, trying to, like, make things right. Yeah, this is like a mashup of uh, Training Day and Fences, Denzel. Sure. Yeah. Like, he's got the bluster, but he knows that he did something wrong, and you'll never fully appreciate right. him. Right. Yeah. But, yeah, but ultimately, like, as much as I appreciate the, like, half-court shot of a movie that this is... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's it's still, like, it, it. of course it doesn't... I mean, it hits the backboard, but it doesn't go in. No. It's very long and it like has a lot of plots and a lot of them don't add up to anything. Specifically the hooker with the heart of gold that's like staying at the Coney Island motel with him. Um but yeah, I think that this movie it might be a soft bad bad. No, that's I'm right there, man. I think like if someone was like is he got game bad? I don't know if I would say it's bad. It's definitely not good. But by it's our, not terrible. But it's not. It's, it's not, not good. good. <laughs> no, it's like by our rating system, it's a bad, bad. Yeah, I mean, if you could clean this movie up. I think pretty good though. Definitely, but like as if you is, edit this for TV, like down to like a a two hour total. Yeah. Cut out the Mila Jovovich. Cut out some of the montages. Cut out the like the traveling to the college scene, like you have seventy percent of the Aaron Copeland. Yeah, you turn down that the channel with the Aaron Copeland on it a little. And, yeah, uh, yeah. But, but yeah, as bad, is, bad. it's both nonsensical and hard to watch. So right. At this point, I think we should bring in our our second guest, Dr. Todd McGowan, who uh, wants to in particular discuss uh, Inside Man. 
but we might duck back a little bit to Mo Better Blues and He Got Game. But let's hear uh, that conversation now, and then Noah and I will come back and talk about the uh, 2006 bank heist. Our guest today is a professor in the University of Vermont's Department of Film and Television Studies. Uh, he's written many books, but for our purposes, uh, we'll be talking about his Spike Lee installment of the Contemporary Film Director series. Todd McGowan, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Jim. Let's dig in. One of the kind of the main lens through which you look at Spike Lee in this book is um, through a, a theory of of excess. And, and you write in the book about, you know, how that applies to psychoanalysis and Lacan and all these things. So forgive me if I boil it down a little too far, uh, just talking about Spike Lee. Um, but whether it's like narrative or visual or cinematic, he takes things over the top. He's fascinated by these transgressive characters who are taking things over the top, people whose kind of um, their passions and their obsessions go well beyond societal norms or like they destroy their ability to live in a family or a community. Um, it's all kind of all encompassing. So where, where I wanted to start here is, you know, whether you're watching Inside Man on your couch for a podcast or whether you're, you know, in a theater watching Do the Right Thing in 1989, what does it do to the audience when you're watching a, a filmmaker who is so excessive? Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like uh, it makes you, it forces you to reevaluate your own, you know, situation as an individual, like how you relate to your society, how you accept, like, do you accept the position that you that's sort of been ideologically given for you and 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 you know by your parents by the society I th so I think it caused you to really call into question a lot of things and also maybe I mean hopefully I think this is his maybe his his ultimate driving purpose is hopefully to find that sort of in yourself and embrace it and thus you know reject certain pressures to to you know tamp down your own ex what your own excesses whatever those are have you ever had the experience of rethinking something because of a Spike Lee movie? I have actually. Like I, I have to say that the 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 um, the famous shot, the the fam the sort of Spike Lee shot, the dolly shot mm -hmm. that, that that he uses so often. That that that's a that's a thing that made me really rethink like my own relation. Like I, at first I hated it. At first I thought this is just, it, it seems weird. It's affected. It doesn't really work. But then I came to see that it's actually pretty radical, you know, and, and it made me sort of rethink my own, like, I don't even in my relationship to even my own, like upbringing, family, everything like that, that shot really had a, I, I would say, a, I mean, I talk about it, I think maybe probably too long in the book, but um, <laughs> it had a real, it had a real dramatic effect on me just kind of as I sort of came to understand what that what he was trying to do in that shot um would you mind sort of uh explaining how you uh think excess relates to that particular shot because i think that's one of the best parts of the book where you talk about what what he's trying to say about um a character and particularly like an obsessive character like bleak gilliam who's like in the heat of practice when he's having that dolly shot yeah, like Bleak is it's perfect example. Like this, so so my point is that he's so invested in his his music that every the, the whole environment around him just falls up. It, it ends up falling away, and so the shot I think nicely captures this distance between the uh, the the subject himself in this case, or or the individual himself, and and 
and the environment, which sort of just, you know, it, it's, it's, you can see that there's a kind of alien relation because it doesn't make, like, it doesn't seem like the, per, the person doesn't really fit into their environment anymore when he shoots that shot. And that seemed, that's what I think, that's why people, it strikes them as so weird. I, I cite a lot of critics who are very, very, you know, right. have a very negative reaction to it. And uh -huh. it's because it just looks weird. It just doesn't look realistic. And, and, and yet a lot of, most of the rest of his film is realistic. So I think that seems, it seems incongruous for them. But I feel like that incongruity is, is actually the point that we don't really, you know, we think we go through our days and we feel like, oh, we fit in pretty well with our, world that we exist in and i think what he's trying to show is well we maybe we really don't and we just miss the ways in which we don't fit mm -hmm. in so um do you have a, f a favorite or a most memorable spike lee dolly shot that your head goes to good question uh i think probably from mo better blues i think the one you just mentioned the bleak gilliam one although i i told you i was just re-watching inside man and i right. kind of love the i love both of them there are two in that one there's one of christopher Plummer. Uh, oh, when he's yeah. surrounded, like memorabilia of his, you know, he's enriched himself because he's, uh, you know, off the Holocaust and, and he, but he's surrounded by all this stuff. It's like, you know, there's a menorah. There's like uh -huh. a so it's, it's very ironic that he's got all these things around him, uh, from Jewish organizations. And then you get this. So the dolly shot, I think nicely shows how, in his case, the excess is, 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 is nefarious. Like it's a, it's a terrible thing that he's kind of lived off of. And so no matter, and I think what it's saying is no matter what he does, he'll never live down this, this originary sin, which I, I really like. And then the one with, uh, with uh, Frazier, uh, Denzel Washington, uh, uh, toward the, when he hear, when he, when he thinks that, 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 uh, they've killed someone, right. that Dalton Russell or Clive Owen is, has, has killed someone and he, he can't believe it because it sort of goes against what his interpretation of of what he thought about them and so then you get this 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 and i think it's almost the most extreme one lee has ever used i mean he comes so fast yeah like and whereas the other ones a lot of times it's like it looks like they're just walking but you're like they're walking weirdly uh -huh. like the, the general fever one it, they could just be walking but again they don't seem to be moving enough to be walking uh or the background's moving too fast but this one, it's clear something really wild is going on, and and I I feel like that I, I like that, and and I think that there it's like all of a sudden he it shows that he was just taken out of himself because yeah. he had a certain you know narrative of expectations that and he thought I'm a pretty good detective I sort of know what's going on and then that's all just totally shattered. Yeah, I can't really think of another Spike Lee Dolly shot that implies rage so much as that one right i think that's right i think uh, that's right um, which is funny because it's also a misplaced rage because it's it was all staged i mean the, there was they didn't push you off so it's a kind of uh it's excessive in that way too you know it's like it's it, it once you know what's going to happen it's wildly inappropriate to to what's happened right right um, so before we get too far into Inside Man, I wanted to to duck out. At one of the one of my favorite little things you noted about Excess and Spike Lee is was just the way that Mars Blackman looks up at Michael Jordan in the Nike commercials. Um, and so I was wondering uh, if we're thinking about Denzel Washington and Spike's collaborations with him, and and just sort of like this this larger than life movie star figure who brings constant like wattage whenever he's on the screen. Um, how might you relate? a theory of excess to maybe specifically 
Denzel and Spike's collaborations with him. Yeah, I think he really uses him well to to evoke that. I mean, I you know, it, it's almost. I think once you have Denzel in a movie, it's almost impossible to not have him be the central figure. Uh, and just uh-huh. like I think it really works well in Mo Better Blues. I think that's one where he just he kind of just commands the film and 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 since that film is all about the this excessive attachment to the trumpet and his playing, I love the way that like, he just is like, look, even if his girlfriend wants to come over for sex, he's like, okay, yeah, come over and have sex, but not now, not while right. I say my trumpet. Uh, I don't know. So I feel like, you know, he, he's constantly making use of him, even in, in, you know, and then Malcolm X, it kind of, I think that it gets, it gets sort of, you know, cause Malcolm X is himself such a, such a huge figure of, of excess, right. uh, you know, in, in 20th century America. And then to have him played by, by Washington, I think really, uh, sort of multiplies that even more, I mm-hmm. feel like. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then what's the, the only one we haven't talked about? He got game. I mean, I feel like there it's interesting because he, the, the, you can imagine a way in which that film would have made the, the father figure a little less, central but i think because it's all about jesus shuttleworth's attachment to basketball right but but really it's the it's i think maybe because washington plays him it ends up being about the father's like it's really he's given this sort of passion for basketball to his to his son and it, it sort of originates with him not with the not with the son so let's talk specifically about Inside Man. Um, when when we were emailing uh, about when we were going to talk, you said that you thought it, it might be uh, his masterpiece, which I was really happy to hear you say. Um, so I guess very simply, uh, why? Well, I feel like, uh, I think I talk a little bit about this in the book. I can't remember, but I feel like it, first of all, I think the heist film is a, is a great genre, but a very hard genre to do well. And so I think it, it really, it captures the genre pretty well, but, it, but, it, but it also, it also challenges certain norms, of the genre in a way that I think are almost unprecedented that it doesn't, it doesn't plan out what the, the heist is good. You know, you don't see the audience does no investment in the, in the robbery before it happens. Right. So, so That's usually like oceans 11, it's all about how does the thing get planned? And that's totally. where you're in, the spectator lies but not here at all and then what i loved about it is that there's no that that first of all they don't steal any but like as far as public record goes they didn't steal anything right, right. So that's like genius that all they stole really is this the excessive criminality that founded the bank itself so they're so i thought in a way i mean it's and, and the fact that one of the guys who's part of the robber i mean we don't know if they're all jewish but one guy certainly is jewish mm-hmm. so it like it was almost an argument i thought for like holocaust reparations <laughs> reparations you know like and all we have to do is just steal this original excess and give it back and, and distribute it and that would be a way to to work that out so i i loved that that's the, that's what they stole and then i i also think the fact that they but that that they show how the the every space there's an opening within the space itself like you don't have to hide behind something you can just hide almost in plain, like not almost, you can just hide in plain sight, which right. is, reminded me of the, I don't know if you know this Edgar Allan Poe story, The Purloined Letter, where... I don't. So the, the, this guy steals a letter, and the police search his house, and he can't, they can't find it, because he's hidden it right on the middle of the his little blackboard, right in plain sight, so they I just see. don't go to look there. And I think this this film does, shows that better than any film I've seen. You know, he's... 
the guy, the one guy's hiding right in the middle of the bank, and the other guys and the and the woman, they just go right out with the with the the freed hostages, which yeah. is just a, it's just stunning. So all on all those levels, I feel like it really, like the idea behind it is really incredible, and I think it's 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 filmed so I th- I think it's the first film of his. Maybe I'm wrong about this that that uh, that that moves around in time, so that we have the you know the interviews. You know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? The film, mm-hmm. like get the interviews after the heist, during the while they're still uh, right. negotiating with the. So I feel like that's a kind of that's a. So I think formally there are a lot of interesting things happening too. I wanted to bounce an idea off you from Inside Man. I wonder what you what you made of the fact that um, the movie is is so conversant in references to other movies in the same genre, like the characters in the movie. Keith Frazier is like saying, you saw Dog Day Afternoon, you know how this ends. Or um, or the fact that like Spike even like stages his own like worse mini movie for what would happen if the SWAT team just went in when the when the guy with the magnum appears like perfectly framed in the vault. And he's just like, yeah, I know what like a dumb version of this movie would be like. <laughs> what do you th- I mean, what do you think about his uh, his like referential abilities or tastes there? To me, that's what that's one of the things that makes the film successful is that it, it, it's so it both inhabits the genre. I mean, in a way that would kind of confirm what I like to say about him in terms of excess, like it inhabits the genre yet it exceeds it at these certain points as well. Like it, mm-hmm. it's like both a, a genre film, but it's a com- commentary on the genres. And I, I loved how just the point you, you made that, that generic, like generic expectations, not only of the, of the viewer are, sort of called into question, but also of the cops, right? Like that's what, that's the whole reason the heist works is that the cops have certain expect, like a heist is not just a filming genre. It's a genre of crime. Right. And they have, kind of, <laughs> you know, they have a way of responding to heist and the people and, 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 and the, the robbers are, they're able to read that and, and thus, you know, they know it, they know what's happening. So I, I think it's also, that's just, as you say, it's a really a film about interpretation, yeah. you know, and what the other is doing and i think that that makes it pretty compelling too well todd thanks so much for your time uh really really enjoyed the conversation i I enjoyed it too i was happy to be here my name is dalton russell pay strict attention to what i say because i choose my words carefully and i never repeat myself recently i planned and set in motion events to execute the perfect bank robbery everybody get down on the floor now why? Because I can. Are you the hostage negotiator? That's right, Detective Frazier. This is Detective Mitchell. What do you got? This is a script and a fine script by Russell Gerwitz. It's a bank heist thriller with a twist um, that's very aware that it is a Hollywood bank heist thriller. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Denzel plays Detective Keith Frazier, who is a, uh, a hostage negotiator. Um pitted against Clive Owen's Dalton Russell, who is uh, robbed, uh, what, the Chase Manhattan Trust? What bank is that? Do you know that bank? It's a, fa- it's a fake one. Okay, great. Um, so uh, he and uh, four other people dressed as painters have taken this bank, taken about 25 to 30 hostages. Um, so those two are kind of pitted against each other. But in a third plot that complicates everything, and also sort of you're wondering why Dalton Russell has robbed this bank. Uh, you have 
the trustee of the bank, uh, Arthur Case, played by Christopher Plummer, who desperately wants the contents of his safe deposit box not to see the light of day. He calls in a fixer, Madeline White, played by Jodie Foster, to kind of like get in between these two as they're sort of having their what do you want, why don't you guess what I want kind of game. Mm-hmm. So there's, once again, it's like, it's a, what could be a very simple plot with some extraneous things to complicate it, but in this one, I think they complicate it beautifully. Yes, because the script is so specific, and I think because Spike Lee didn't write it himself, like, it, he can do his fun, Spike Lee flourishes, like, and, like, play with race and play with sexuality and gender and all that. It snaps him back after the shot is cut because he has to get back to the script. Right, right. Which I think is a good, for better or worse, like a good thing for him. Where I think he falters is when he tries to make this too much of like a Spike Lee movie. Mm. Which I'll get to in the climax. Ah, uh, yes. Um, so should we start with the performances in this one? Yeah. Denzel is uh, older here. I think he's probably coming up on 50 by the point of this movie. He might've been actually 50 on the, on the nose. Um, right. And uh, he's very slick, very slick, but fallible. You know, you meet him and his partner show a Um And he's already sort of uh, in the doghouse over some money that walked away from a check cashing business. Um, so he's surprised that he gets this assignment, um, but he does. And he is, he would be more than up to it if Clive Owen's character was not a genius. Right. Uh, oh, he's and, totally competent. Yeah. But like, he's, he knows that he's not as clever as Clive Owen is pretty quickly. Their on-screen dynamic is incredible because, and I, th- I think it happens like on a couple different levels. Um, because Clive Owen is so like passive and unreadable and through much of the movie he's actually wearing sunglasses and like a white uh, like kerchief that he pulls up from his collar. It's very much like a Bane kind of role. Yeah. Um, And you can see his lips on like the white fabric and that's a very interesting thing. So on the one hand, Denzel is just like, why won't you tell me what you're doing here? But then you also kind of see him like acting and like looking for his acting partner that he competes with. Right. And he can't find it because the character and the context like won't give it to him. And it's a fascinating dynamic. And that's where I, th- and you see the Spike Lee movie bumping up against this like big budget Hollywood film. Do you? I think, I think the, the marriage is pretty good. I, but I think the climax and again, the ending sort of epilogue montage ruins <laughs> this movie. And like ruins the, there's this strong words. I think keeps it from being well, we'll get there in a second. Oh God. But I think this movie, so what happens is like what they're waiting for is someone to like draw the first blood basically. So they can go in and smoke, like just kill these guys. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the, what all these movies hang on. It's like, who's going to draw first blood? How can we keep hostages from getting killed kind of thing? Mm -hmm. And so in this movie, they, I mean, this movie's from 10 Almost 15 years ago. Like, we can spoil it, right? Maybe don't spoil the final, final twist. Okay. Well, there's a scene where something violent happens. And in Spike Lee mode, Denzel gets out of, like, his mobile operations van. 
and runs to the door of the bank, but it, it's not like normally covered. It's in his Denzel or in his Spike Lee dolly shot where like people are running in the back, but Denzel's just standing there and the back is like moving away from him. Mm-hmm. And it's like really off putting because like this movie up until this point, like, yes, it has some beautiful shots in it, but it has nothing that requires this suspension of visual disbelief. Right. So it's so odd. Okay, the edit out of the dolly shot is really good, though. Because he appears and starts banging on the door, and Clive is, like, waiting for him. But, th- but I thought that was so, like, visually confusing. Because you're like, but he was not moving at all. Why, why is he now moving? <laughs> but I don't know. I think the problem is that, like, the dolly shot signifies a certain psychological closeness with the person, with the protagonist of the movie. And right. while Keith Frazier is your protagonist, you're fascination with his emotional palette and state of mind is not the main point here. A hundred percent. And then the ending of the movie too. I mean, this movie literally like has to end like the usual suspects, right? Like essentially the same, like the, the guy walking down the street and it doesn't. And that is a crime. I don't know. I think it's like, it, it just keeps, there's like another five <laughs> minutes after that. And it's like, I, why is there more the movie final, here? Like, the, the movie's over. End, the very end is so good. I don't need the, like, you click here to press record. When there's blood on the street, somebody's got to go to jail. But him coming home and being, like, the sort of, like, everyone's implicated. Like, I finally got my break, but now I'm implicated. I think it's good. I think it's dumb. Okay. I think, again, it's Spike Lee, like, swinging too hard to like add more like a bigger to make this a bigger movie than it needed to be you say you want a usual suspects ending but if it just gave you like the walks out of the bank bumps him i I think you're just like then it's just doing the usual suspects i think you got to take the good with bad the bad spike with the good spike here without the incredible jody foster pat down on the floor from the ceiling shot you gotta you gotta have that and you gotta have the the extra 15 minutes yeah. For me, it's worth it. I think ultimately this movie is... Are we ready? I got to point out, I think this is... It may be sort of studio fair where Spike doesn't have that much control of the script, but you could see why he would be fascinated by this movie that begins in Brooklyn, where he loves to set his movies so much. And you have all these people from all these different walks of life who kind of like converge in this like soulless center of Manhattan commerce... Right. Um, and you kind of see how they all like mingle together. Like Spike is very interested in that, like in the sociological experiment that is all these people meeting up right here. Right. Yeah, no, he has fun with it. And there's nothing in the script that maybe even called for that. Right. Like it probably just starts with fade in exterior bank. Right. But Spike like, pulls up. Nah. So what are you going to say? Are you going to break my heart or aren't you? You go first. I think it's good, good, clearly. <laughs> I think I think this movie is incredibly entertaining. And I just think you have to, like, you know, deal with it at the end. Well, yes, when Christopher Plummer sits in front of Jodie Foster and says, but the Nazis paid too well. Like, <laughs> yes, that's ridiculous. But right. I don't know, man. I think it's, like, an incredible genre riff. Like, a hard good good for me. I think I'm going to have to give it a soft, bad good. 
I think there's 15 to 20 minutes of fat on this movie that could be trimmed. It's again, it's so long. Like that's what keeps <laughs> it from being a good genre entry is the fact that it's like 40 minutes longer than the other, like every other bank robbery movie. Mm. And yeah, there's some re- like crazy, like, yes, seeing him riff is entertaining and that's why I've given it a second good. But like some of his riffs are just outrageous. And then like the I didn't even find the twist to be like that clear. Like what the end game for Clive Owen even was. Like to open a movie with such a like a open parentheses from his perspective, like here's how I did this thing. The close parentheses is like pretty obtuse, I would say. I mean, he basically just pulled off he pulls off the perfect bank robbery by simultaneously pulling off the perfect blackmail. Well, I think that's the thing is he performed the perfect blackmail by pretending he was robbing a bank. There you go. That's a fine way to say it too. But I think the implication that like he didn't commit a crime, which I think the movie like kind of is positing is Is like wrong. I don't think well, like that. having the fake the fake guns and the fact that they didn't kill anybody. Like, there's no reason that they didn't need to kill anybody. Like, they could have easily killed someone. But it's all, like, about misdirection and sort of proving that maybe what they did would have been a misdemeanor at best. No, I think that's what makes it the perfect blackmail, Because they didn't have... It was not, not armed kidnapping. It was just, like, these people were there and then, like, it wasn't even clear who was involved. Yeah, but by not killing anyone, they make it possible for the police department to say, we got no reason Fuck to look it. into this further. Yeah. If they'd killed someone, the case would have stayed open. The movie posits they haven't committed a serious enough of a crime with this movie to like face any prosecution. Mm-hmm. So you think the NYPD would still be looking for that, probably? I think in real life, 100%. <laughs> well, does not add up, Mr. Ballard. It does not add up. Let's wrap up, shall we? Um, no, but like, where do you think in the level of like these New York auteur directors, like where does he fall for you from these three films? Um, I think these three pre- create a pretty interesting spectrum of like where he's at his best and where he's at his worst. Um, yeah, they're interesting case studies, I would say. Yeah left to where is he left to his own devices the most and where where does he like have a great cast and a good script to work with he's a pioneer like i'm not don't get me wrong i think i think that he continues to make movies is amazing in and of itself and makes movies as ambitiously as he wants to yeah you know but like as i'm just coming in as a, a cold audience member like i like his work so i can like appreciate his winks and his little like spike lee isms yeah but I think, like, he's doing a lot of things to serve the isms and not to, like, use the isms to serve the movie. That's true. I think In that's, many ways. I, I mean, in some ways, it, they work in the movie, and because they worked once, because the dolly shot worked once in the movie doesn't mean <laughs> you should do it in every movie you ever make ever again. Right. Well, you know, he does. Or because it's you picked, like, some, like, bizarre music choice to do one montage over... Doesn't mean you need to do that every time. He's very imperfect, and I think it's like part of what makes him so interesting. And in that he can—he has indulgent interest, interests, but also like is not one of those guys who's like, 
always into like authenticity plays, which like important directors often are, and that can make right. him refreshing. He he, it is a fascinating body of work, and we should probably oh a hundred percent. Well, pal, thanks for this. Yeah, no, I I liked this a lot. I, I'm a big fan of Spike Lee. And thanks to our guests, uh, David Starrett and uh, Todd McGowan, for their insights. To find past episodes of Be Real Guys, find us on berealguys.com, SoundCloud, iTunes, Overcast, wherever you get your podcasts, we should be there. Feel free to talk at us on Facebook or Twitter. Email us at berealguys at gmail.com. This has been a Be Real Guys joint. Noah? Sir? That's the double truth, Ruth. Jesus saves. Tell <laughs>